Hello everyone, I'm Dorothy Jody. I'm your uh, lecturer for this video series and in this class we're going to talk about voiding physiology. Now this is really important content. It's not necessarily easy content because for most of us this is stuff we never studied in nursing school. But when you think about how we approach patient care issues, knowing what's normal is essential for understanding abnormal, for doing your patient assessment, and for developing appropriate management plans. So we're gonna walk through this. I don't want you to get hung up in minute details. I want you to kind of get the big picture of what each component of the system does. Okay, so let's see why I think, there, there we go. So when you think about control voiding, and you know what, we don't think about it. We take it for granted, right? We're just going about our day, we get a message from our bladder that it's full, we figure out a time to go, we run into the bathroom, we pee, we're, our mind's on something else the whole time, where we have to be. We don't think about how complicated this whole process is but you're going to start thinking about it because that's what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. So control voiding actually requires coordination among multiple structures and nerve pathways. You already know there are two major phases of the voiding cycle. There's the storage phase where normally the bladder stretches and stores at low pressure and the urethral sphincter is tightly closed. If a patient has problems in the storage phase, they will come to you complaining of leakage. The other part of the voiding cycle is the emptying phase, where we made it to the bathroom and we expect the urethra to open and the bladder to contract and everything to come out quickly because we have things to do and places to go. If there are problems with the emptying phase, patients will complain that it takes them forever to empty their bladder, that they don't really feel full, feel as if they empty completely, that they keep running back. Those are problems with retention. So we'll keep coming back to these basic concepts over and over. Now there are actually three major systems and organs that affect voiding and continence. There are the structures that provide neural control avoidance. So that includes the cortex, the midbrain, the brainstem, and all the nerve pathways. There's the bladder itself, and there's the urethra and sphincter. So let's start at the top. It's literally at the top, and it's at the top of the organizational structure in that it's the brain that makes all the decisions about when and where you void. The brain gives you what I call social continence. Social continence allows me to delay voiding even when I'm so full it's painful. Social continence also allows me to initiate voiding when somebody says, here, pee in the cup, or when somebody says, you know we're gonna be stuck in this meeting for four hours. I'm like, okay, I better go to the bathroom. That's because normally the cortex and the midbrain are in control. So let's just walk through that. You know that the vast majority of the time, the bladder is in storage mode. Bladder walls relaxed, sphincters closed. At this point, there is actually a center known as the pontine storage center. 
That is the center that's in control. It is constantly sending messages to the bladder wall. Hang loose, stay relaxed. It's constantly sending messages to the sphincter. Stay tight, stay closed. Now, as the bladder fills, you get sensory input that is sent to the midbrain, specifically the periaqueductal gray. You don't have to remember that. Just remember that as the bladder fills, it's sending messages to the midbrain. Hey, I'm getting full. Hey, I'm really full. Hey, you gotta find a place where I can pee because I can't hold much more. So the messages are sent to the midbrain. The midbrain processes those messages and forwards them to the cortex. And then what happens? Well, remember, the cortex is the guy in charge. So he's getting all these messages from the midbrain that says, bladder's really full, bladder requesting to be emptied, more SOS messages from the bladder. And the cortex balances that with input regarding everything else. Where are you? What are you doing? Are you in the car? Are you standing in front of a classroom? Are you in a patient's room? The cortex then makes the decision based on input from the bladder and input regarding everything else that's going on. Is this or is this not a good time to void? So let's say, no, you're still five miles away from the nearest exit, from the nearest rest area or the nearest fast food restaurant. Then the brain's gonna say, nope, you've gotta delay voiding Pontine Storage Center, stay active. Then messages continue to go, to go to the bladder. Hang loose, hang loose, store a little more, store a little more. Sphincters, hang tight. But let's say the cortex is like, hey, this is an okay time. You found a bathroom, you're in the bathroom. Then the cortex will release its inhibition of the midbrain, the periaqueductal gray. The midbrain will activate the pontine micturition center. So you see how the switch is being flipped? So now you're going from storage to voiding. The pontine micturition center activates pathways that cause the sphincter to open and the bladder to contract. It's really pretty amazing when you realize how it all works together. So let's talk about the brainstem. That's where you have the pontine micturition center and the Pontine Storage Center. We're gonna start with the Pontine Storage Center because most of the time, the bladder is in storage mode. And anytime the bladder's in storage mode is being controlled by the Pontine Storage Center. Now, how does the Pontine Storage Center keep the bladder wall relaxed and the sphincter tight? Well, first of all, it sends messages that activate nerve cells at the sacral level of the core. That collection of nerve cells is known as ONUP's nucleus. You do not have to know that, but you'll see that sometimes as you're reading articles or you might hear it referenced at conference. What I want you to think is, okay, the Pontine Storage Center is activating this group of nerves in the sacral cord. When that group of nerve cells is activated, it stimulates the pudendal nerve to keep the sphincter tight. So we're used to thinking of the pudendal nerve. Most of us know about that nerve, and we know that it's a very important nerve when it comes to continence, that it controls sphincter function. So 
That Pontine Story Center activates that group of nerve cells in the sacral cord. They hand off to the pudendal nerve. The pudendal nerve sends messages to the sphincter, stay tight. At the same time, the storage center activates the sympathetic nervous system. Now you know the autonomic nervous system, sympathetic, parasympathetic, sympathetic as fight or flight, and parasympathetic as day-to-day -day operations. I think of it this way. The sympathetic nervous system is in control during the storage phase. So SS, sympathetic, promotes storage. Another way to think about it is when you're fighting or fleeing, you don't have time to pee. So you want the sympathetic nervous system in charge. What does the sympathetic nervous system do? Those pathways activate nerve cells in the bladder wall to keep the bladder wall relaxed and activate nerve cells in the proximal urethra, also known as the internal sphincter, to keep the sphincter tight. Now you think, well now how does sympathetic stimulation cause tightening at the bladder neck but relaxation at the bladder wall? And it's because of two different types of receptors. Okay, so in the bladder neck you have your alpha adrenergic receptors that respond to sympathetic stimulation by tightening. In the bladder wall you have beta-3 receptors that respond to sympathetic stimulation by hanging loose. So during storage, what's in control? Pontine Storage Center. Activating pathways to keep sphincters tight, activating pathways to keep bladder wall relaxed. That's what I really want you to remember. Those are the critical elements. Now, what happens when the Pontine Micturition Center is in control? Well, this is when you've gotten to the bathroom. The cortex is like, okay, voiding is now appropriate. It's released its control of the midbrain so that the midbrain can activate the pontine micturition center. When you activate the pontine micturition center, you shut down the sympathetic pathways and you shut down that collection of nerve cells in the sacral cord. So now you release the stimulation to the sphincters and the sphincters relax. The pontine micturition center then activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So remember, sympathetic stores, parasympathetic pees. So when the parasympathetic nervous system's in control, you release acetylcholine. Acetylcholine acts on the bladder wall to cause contraction. So let's kind of summarize it again. Cortex says yes. The midbrain releases is inhibition of the pontine micturition center flips the switch, okay? So now storage is off, emptying the zone. Specifically what happens? I stop sending messages to the sphincters to stay tight, so I allow them to relax. I send a message to the parasympathetic nervous system to contract the bladder wall. So now I have an open urethra and a bladder that's contracting to force urine out. But go back to a very important point. The cortex is normally in control. So all the decisions about when and where to void are made by the cortex. These other guys, the Pontine Storage Center, the Pontine Victorian Center, and all the pathways that they control, 
they're all ultimately controlled by the cortex. Now we know this on one level because what happens to our patients who develop dementia and who lose the ability to process information correctly? They lose continence. So when you think about the cortex, I want you to think social continence. When you think about the brainstem, I want you to think about the Pontine Micturition Center and the Pontine Storage Center. So the cortex makes the decision, but these guys carry out the orders. We talked about sending messages through nerve pathways. So the Pontine Micturition Center, the Pontine Storage Center, right here in the brainstem. How are they gonna get messages to the bladder and to the sphincter? Because the bladder and the sphincter are way down there in the pelvis and they're way up here in the neck and the head. And of course, it's the spinal cord pathways. And there are three critical pathways. There's the sympathetic, the parasympathetic, and the pudendal. And I sometimes think of the spinal cord pathways as the AT&T, T-Mobile, Sprint of the control voiding system. Because these are the guys that take all the messages back and forth. They take messages from the bladder and the sphincter to the brain. They take messages from the brain to the bladder and the sphincter. Let's talk about what each of these pathways do. So first you've got your sympathetic pathways. Those pathways exit the cord at T10 to L2. When the sympathetic nervous system is active, the neurotransmitters that are being released are epinephrine and norepinephrine. Epinephrine and norepinephrine cause the bladder neck to tighten and the bladder wall to relax. We've just said that. Remember, sympathetic stores. So under sympathetic stimulation, what's gonna happen? The bladder neck will stay tight and the bladder wall will stay relaxed. Now, obviously, sympathetic stimulation is a major contributor to continence and to bladder control. So it would be great if we had some medications that mimicked the effects of the sympathetic nervous system to keep the bladder wall relaxed and the bladder neck tight. But at this point in time, there are no medications that are FDA approved for management of incontinence. Maybe next year or next decade. What about the parasympathetic pathways? Well, they come off the cord at S2 to S4. The primary neurotransmitter for the parasympathetic nervous system is acetylcholine. So sometimes you'll hear people talking about cholinergic drugs. Those are drugs that mimic the effects of acetylcholine. And what does acetylcholine do? At the level of the bladder, it causes contraction. So remember, parasympathetic peas the primary effect of parasympathetic stimulation is bladder contraction. Well, think about all the patients you have in urinary retention. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a really effective cholinergic drug that could make the bladder contract and could eliminate retention? But at this point in time, we do not have any effective cholinergic drugs. We have some that are out there that have been used but the dose required to make the bladder contract 
creates multiple adverse effects. So at this point in time, do we have effective cholinergic drugs for management of urinary retention? No. But we have a lot of anticholinergic drugs. So if cholinergic drugs make the bladder contract and empty, what would anticholinergic drugs do? They would promote storage. They would reduce urinary frequency. They would reduce urinary urgency. We have a lot of those drugs on the market. So some of the older drugs, you know, like Ditropan, those are what we call broad spectrum anticholinergics. So they affect the bladder, but they also affect lots of other organs with lots of adverse effects. We have a newer category of anticholinergic drugs that are very specific, and they're known as anti-muscarinics because the cholinergic receptors in the bladder wall are actually muscarinic receptors. We'll talk more about these, but I just want you to start thinking, okay, what's the clinical relevance here? So the clinical relevance is if you have someone whose bladder's contracting too frequently or in response to low volumes of urine, can you do anything about it? Are there medications that could help? And the answer is yes, anticholinergics. Now, I'm just gonna mention this last bullet point. I don't want you to focus on it right now. We'll come back to it. But the parasympathetic pathways are actually part of a reflex arc that can control voiding if you lose all central control. That's important only in management of patients with spinal cord injuries and neurogenic bladder, but you'll hear about that later in this um, course. Right now, you can let that go. We'll come back to it. And then the last pathway is the pudendal nerve. Now this is a sensory motor nerve. It also exits the cord at S2 to S4, but the pudendal nerve activates voluntary muscles. So remember, there's that little group of nerve cells at the sacral cord that when stimulated, activate the pudendal nerve, then the pudendal nerve causes the sphincters to tighten. But here's what I want you to remember. How many of you tighten up when your bladder's really full and you're like, oh my gosh, I gotta get to the bathroom. I gotta tighten my sphincter muscles. I gotta hold it in. How many of you do Kegel muscle exercises? You are using your pudendal nerve because it's the pudendal nerve that controls those muscle fibers that allows you to voluntarily contract or voluntarily relax. So you'll hear a lot about the um, pudendal nerve. It's a really important nerve. Okay, so here are the big points to remember about neural control. I know this is a lot of information. Um, a lot of it is new to you. First of all, I want to reassure you that we're gonna keep coming back to this. You're gonna hear this content referenced again, so we don't expect it to just attach like magic to your brain cells at this point. But I want you to remember that social continence comes from the cortex. That's what allows you to delay voiding when you're really full. That's what allows you to activate voiding when somebody tells you, I need a urine specimen. Or remember when you were a kid and your mom said, everybody go to the bathroom before we get in the car? And we all said, we don't have to go. And she said, go anyway. They all said the same thing, right? Well, you could go anyway because your cortex can 
essentially activate the pathways that make the bladder contract even when the bladder is not full. Bottom line, how important is neural control? It's essential. If there's damage to any of these centers or any of these pathways, you're going to have problems either with continence or with retention or with a combination. So you'll keep hearing this content. Okay, so we've talked about structures that provide neural control avoiding. Now let's talk a little bit more about the bladder itself and about the sphincter. So we'll start with the bladder. You know that it's a hollow organ. You know it's primarily a muscle. So what's its job? Stretch and store, contract and empty. We mentioned very briefly that there were three layers in the bladder wall. So the urethelium is the lining of the bladder. And you know, for a long time, we really didn't think that much about the urethelium, but we've learned a lot about its importance. So what does it do? It's not just sitting there. It's actually a very active layer. First of all, it has multiple receptors, and those receptors are sensitive to thermal, mechanical, and chemical stimuli. So when, the, when there's an irritant in the urine, when there is a bladder infection, what happens is that the urethelium produces excessive amounts of si uh, signaling molecules that tell you that your bladder's full, even when it's not. So how many of you have had a bladder infection at some point in your life? Practically everyone. And what were your symptoms? You had to go all the time. Even little bits of urine in your bladder made you feel very full, like you had to go right now. Why? Because the bacteria in the urine activated receptors in the bladder lining, in the urethelium. The urethelium responded to those stimuli by increasing signaling to the brain, the bladder's full, the bladder's full, the bladder's full. And that's the message you got. And that's the message you responded to. So, also responds to mechanical receptors. So the fuller the bladder gets, what's gonna happen at the level of the urethelium? It's getting stretched. You have all these stretch receptors that are going off. And what are they doing? They're notifying the brain, the bladder's full, the bladder's full, the bladder's full. So the urethelium actually very important to continence and to bladder health. It helps to protect us against bacterial invasion. It provides a protective layer that keeps irritants away from the bladder wall itself. But all those little receptors tell your bladder, tell your brain when your bladder's full. Sometimes it gets it wrong. Most of the time it gets it right. Now there's a in-between layer, the lamina propria, that's very important when we talk about malignancies, not as important when we talk about continence, so I'm going to kind of scoot past that, to the detrusor, that's the muscle layer. Now the bladder muscle is kind of unique in that it's comprised of what they call single unit smooth muscle cells. Well, what does that mean? It means that every muscle fiber has its own innervation which gives you a very, very high level of nervous system control. Now, there's a lot of factors or characteristics of the bladder muscle that support continence. 
One thing is that these muscle fibers are designed to stretch slowly as the bladder gradually fills, and they're designed not to contract until the bladder reaches capacity or until a voluntary decision is made to void. So very gradual stretch. Now, as that muscle stretches, as the bladder fills, those muscle fibers kind of start twitching. So they're just twitching. They're not really squeezing and contracting. So that twitching does not cause emptying, but you know what it does? It sends additional signals to the brain that the bladder's full. So the brain's getting messages from many sources, from the urethelium, from the bladder muscle itself. And that helps to alert you that your bladder's full and you need to void. Now we've already talked about the fact that with normal function, the bladder is going to stretch easily and readily to store urine at low pressures and then will contract to empty completely. Let's talk about how important normal stretch is. You'll hear the term compliance. A lot of you have used the term compliance in terms of pulmonary function. So you know that patients who have normal lung compliance, if you have to put them on the ventilator, it's easy to breathe for them because those little alveoli fill easily. They don't provide resistance. But as compliance goes down, we have to dial up the pressure on the ventilator to be able to force air in to those very stiff little air sacs. Same concept holds true for the bladder. If you have a nice stretchy bladder, that's what you want, a nice stretchy bladder, then it's gonna maintain low pressure throughout the filling cycle. And remember, that's important because the bladder's constantly receiving urine from the kidneys. And the kidneys are transporting urine through the ureters, a low pressure system. So I have to keep pressures in the bladder low in order to continue to receive urine from the kidneys. If I get a stiff bladder that can't stretch and store at low pressures, what happens is it interferes with urine delivery from the kidneys. I get back pressure on the kidneys. You can get hydronephrosis. You can eventually end up in renal failure and on dialysis. Here's the other thing. From a symptomatic perspective, if you have a stiff, non-stretchy bladder, then even small amounts of urine can cause intense urgency to void because the bladder thinks it's completely full. So you want a nice, stretchy bladder. But you also want a bladder that has normal contractility. So you want the bladder to be able to force all the urine out. When you go to the bathroom, if you have 450 milliliters in your bladder, how many milliliters do you want left when you come out of the bathroom? Zero, right? Because if you come out with 200, you're already halfway full. So that effective contractility is also very important. It prevents stasis. It prevents urgency and frequency. Patients who lose normal contractility develop varying degrees of retention, increases the risk of infection, and sometimes increases the risk of renal damage. 
Now, we briefly mentioned the impact of infection and inflammation on bladder function. So remember that urothelium again. Pathogens, bacteria, and irritants increase signaling by the urothelium. So it sends the message to the brain that your bladder is completely full, when in fact, maybe you're, you're at 25% capacity. Just go back to when you've had cystitis and think how intense the urge to void was, even though there was only a small amount of urine in the bladder. That's because irritants and bacteria adversely affect the urothelium and increase signaling to the brain. Another example, how many of you have had patients with indwelling catheters and they keep leaking around the catheter and you're like, why are you leaking around the catheter? You've already checked the catheter, it's patent, so why are they leaking? Because the catheter itself can act as a mechanical irritant that can result in muscle spasms. So the bladder is pretty sensitive to irritants and to pathogens. We've talked about neural control. We've talked about how important it is to have normal stretch and normal contractility on the part of the bladder. Now let's talk about the faucet, that urethral sphincter mechanism. There are actually multiple factors that work together to maintain urethral closure during filling and to assure an open pathway and unobstructed voiding. We've talked about urethral length and the benefits of having that longer urethra. We've talked about the fact that males are innately more resistant to incontinence. We've talked about curvatures, and you know from physics, every time you introduce a curve, what happens to the resistance along that channel? Resistance goes way up. Another anatomical feature for men is the prostate gland. So as you know, it surrounds the urethra right at the base of the bladder. It provides support for the bladder neck. It provides increased urethral resistance and protection against leakage. On the negative side, late in life, a lot of men develop hypertrophy of the prostate, and that can actually result in obstructed voiding, BPH. We'll come back to that. Okay, well, so far, what do women have going for them? Nothing. We don't have length, we don't have curves, and we don't have a prostate gland. Now, the next two things both men and women have and that these are anatomical and physiologic um, characteristics. So there's actually a submucosal vascular cushion that surrounds the urethra. It acts like a non-compressible sponge so that when you contract the sphincter muscles, the muscles press against that vascular network and it helps to maintain even closure of the urethra. It essentially augments the function of the sphincter muscles. Here's the negative from a female perspective, and that is that the thickness of that vascular cushion is estrogen dependent. So what does that mean postmenopausally? It means that women have less support. The next thing is urethral coaptation, and coaptation means the tendency of the urethral walls to stick together. They literally cling to each other. 
Part of that is due to mucus that's produced by urethral glands, and part of that's just due to the softness of the urethral tissue. Also go back to the fact that the urethra is a narrow channel. But again, mucus production and the softness of the tissues in women is estrogen dependent. So again, what happens postmenopausally? So if you look at everything lined up so far, women is kind of like men are looking good, women not so good, and postmenopausal women look to be doomed, right? What else have we got? We've got sphincter muscles. We've got smooth muscle fibers at the bladder neck that are also known as the internal sphincter. And these fibers are present in both men and women. They are not subject to voluntary control. So if I told you tighten up your bladder neck, you'd be like, where is that? I can't feel that. And I don't think I can control those muscles. And you would be right. So those are muscle fibers located within the proximal urethra, right at the bladder neck, that are controlled by the autonomic nervous system. When you're in storage mode, the sympathetic pathways are active. Sympathetic pathways cause that internal sphincter, that bladder neck, to tighten. But you can't do anything voluntarily. So let's look at the external sphincter. This is a critical structure, and it is the one structure over which we have voluntary control. It's the structure that we can strengthen with repeated exercises. So where is it? Well, when we talk about the striated or voluntary sphincter mechanism, some people call it the external sphincter, it's actually a group of muscles. So it's the urethral sphincter muscle and then the periurethral sphincter muscles. In men, it's located just below the prostate gland. So if you look at the top slide, you can see just below the prostate a band of muscle. And that is the voluntary sphincter mechanism or striated sphincter mechanism. In women, it's located at midpoint between the bladder neck and the urethral opening. Now those sphincter muscles, they're absolutely critical to continence and they're very well suited to their job because they contain both slow twitch and fast twitch fibers. Two thirds of the muscle fibers for both men and women are slow twitch. Slow twitch fibers are very fatigue resistant. They're designed for resistance over time. And it's your slow twitch fibers that provide resting tone that keep you dry throughout the day when you're not even thinking about it. Fast twitch fibers allow you to rapidly increase urethral resistance. So if your bladder's already full and you know you're about to sneeze, how many of you tighten your pelvic floor before you sneeze? That's really smart because that engages those fast twitch fibers which increase urethral resistance enough to withstand the downward force created by that sneeze. Now, the voluntary muscle, the external sphincter, is innervated primarily by the pudendal nerve because it's primarily a voluntary muscle, but there's also autonomic innervation that contributes to continence. 
So we've already talked about what happens when you voluntarily contract, but there's a very interesting reflex known as the guarding reflex. And what they found is as the bladder fills, you get increased tone and increased resistance in that sphincter muscle. And that's not from voluntary contraction. That's from um, autonomic nervous system innervation that responds to bladder filling by tightening the bladder neck. That's your sympathetic nervous system at work protecting you. Now there's another um, set of muscles that's really important and especially to women. And that's what we call the pelvic floor. It's all the muscles and ligaments that provide support to all the pelvic structures. And those structures together, so if you look at this slide and you see all of those muscles, there's lots of muscles and ligaments that hold everything in position. And then if you look at the bottom slide, I want you to look at that red band of muscles. So that pelvic floor helps to keep the bladder and the urethra in position so that the sphincter works normally. And early in life, the pelvic floor acts very much like a trampoline. So think what happens on a trampoline. You push down and the trampoline pushes back and holds everything in position. But with aging, with babies, with loss of estrogen, that trampoline becomes much more like a hammock. You push down and it kind of gives way. And so instead of maintaining everything in position so that it functions normally, it tends to allow things to sag and to drop out of position and that compromises continence. So is there any good news in all of this? <laughs> That's probably what a lot of you are thinking. Well, the good news is the bottom point here. And that is that pelvic muscle exercises at any point in life help to keep the voluntary sphincter mechanism and the entire pelvic floor mechanism strong and help to keep that pelvic floor acting more like a trampoline and less like a hammock. We'll spend a lot of time talking about exactly how sphincter contraction works and how Kegel exercises work and how you can teach patients to do Kegel exercises correctly. And this is why. There's many things we can't control. We cannot control the length of our urethra. We can't control whether or not we have curves. We can't control how sticky the urethral walls are postmenopausally. But we can strengthen the voluntary external sphincter muscle and we can strengthen the pelvic floor. So in summary, continence and voiding are complex functions. They're affected by multiple factors. When we assess a patient with incontinence or avoiding dysfunction, we have to consider structures that provide neural control as well as assessing the bladder and the sphincter. During the storage phase, the factors that maintain urethral closure must be greater than forces promoting elimination. And what that means is urethral pressures must be higher than bladder pressures. And it should be that way, right? Because the bladder should be relaxed, the sphincter should be tight. During the emptying phase, factors that promote urine elimination 
must be in charge. They must be greater than factors maintaining urethral closures. So normally, the sphincter opens, urethral pressures drop, the bladder contracts, bladder pressures go up, and urine is eliminated. Now, I know you thought we were done because it said summary, but we're not quite done yet. We're almost done. We need to talk briefly about the effects of aging on voiding and continence because we know that incontinence and voiding dysfunction are much more common among the elderly. Common does not mean normal. Common does not mean untreatable. It just means you're more likely to see these problems in the elderly. And there are some changes that occur with aging that contribute to issues with incontinence or with retention. First of all, almost all of us, as we age, produce increasing amounts of urine during nighttime hours. So when we're young, we produce relatively low volumes of urine at night because we have a lot of antidiuretic hormone produced to concentrate urine during the night. But when you talk to your elderly patients, they will tell you, oh, I get up two times a night. I get up three times a night. I feel like a jumping jack up all night long. And actually, one to two episodes of nocturia are considered normal for individuals over 60 years of age. There's research ongoing into that phenomenon to see, well, what can we do to control that? What can we do to re reduce nocturia episodes so people can sleep through the night? But you can see that that would cause issues for our patients and that would increase their risk of incontinence during the night. There are also changes in the bladder wall, changes in the muscle itself. A lot of times patients will report reduced capacity. They'll say, my bladder doesn't hold as much as it used to, I don't think. It seems like I have to go really badly and then I get there and I don't go so much. And actually, there has been some research documenting reduced muscle and increased collagen in many elderly individuals. And you can see, if you replace muscle with collagen, you're going to end up with a stiff, non-stretchy bladder that has reduced capacity. Well, if I have reduced capacity, that translates into increased frequency. At the same time, a lot of our older patients have reduced contractility. So when the bladder contracts, it doesn't contract forcefully to empty completely. You get weak contractions that partially eliminate the urine. If this person goes to the bathroom with say 350 milliliters in their bladder and they void 200, and they leave with 150 post-void residual, you can see they're between a third and a half of being full again. So reduced contractility means they have higher post-void residual volumes and increased frequency. So you've got a bladder that doesn't hold as much, doesn't empty as effectively, but you also get a bladder that is more sensitive, more twitchy, more likely to contract inappropriately. So that increases urgency and it increases the risk of leakage. Finally, most of us 
if we were asked to tell you where our bladder was on a filling scale, if we were asked to say, oh, it's between zero and 25%, between 25 and 50%, between 50 and 75%, or between 75% and max capacity, most of us pretty much know. We kind of know where our bladder's to. We're getting accurate signals all the time. But with aging, we lose receptors. And many times individuals do not get the message that the bladder's full until they're almost at capacity. So you can see why this is a problem. If you know where you're to at all times in terms of bladder filling, you can make appropriate plans for going to the bathroom. But what if you never knew until the last minute and now you're trying to get down the hall and you might not make it? So obviously, that gives them less response time, that increases the risk of leakage, especially if they have problems with mobility. There are gender-specific issues, we've already addressed those, prostate enlargement, um, loss of estrogen. And then just the fact that many elderly individuals have reduced mobility and they're on multiple medications, and that can affect bladder function in and of itself. Now the last couple of slides here, you are close to the end, so don't give up. Um, we talked as we were going through about the need to find medications that would favorably affect bladder function and sphincter function. So I wanted to go over what is available and terminology that you're going to hear related to these medications. So one category of medications that is available and is beneficial for some of our patients are alpha adrenergic agonists. Now, these are meds that mimic the effects of sympathetic stimulation on bladder and sphincter function. They increase urethral resistance. <clears throat> Examples are pseudoephedrine and duloxetine. Sometimes these medications are used to try to reduce leakage, but you should know that at this point in time, None of these medications are FDA-approved FDA specifically for incontinence management. So yes, they're sometimes used. At this point, that would be off-label. What about alpha-adrenergic antagonists? These are medications that actually block the effects of sympathetic stimulation on the proximal urethra and bladder neck. So sympathetic stimulation tightens the proximal urethra tightens the bladder neck. Alpha adrenergic antagonists would reduce urethral resistance. They would tend to open up the bladder neck. When would that be beneficial? What if I have a patient in retention? It might help to reduce the resistance at the bladder neck to give an open channel. So tamsulosin, alphazosin, there's a number of medications that fall into this category and you will frequently see those medications used as first-line therapy for men with prostate hypertrophy to open up the urethra and allow urine to pass through. Cholinergic, these are medications that mimic the effects of acetylcholine. They essentially mimic parasympathetic stimulation. They would cause the bladder to contract. It would be very beneficial if we had an effective cholinergic agent. 
But as we said, as we went through, at this point in time, we really do not have a medication that has been consistently effective without intolerable side effects. But Thanacol has been used some. You will rarely see it used today because it has minimal effectiveness and high incidence of side effects. But anticholinergics are widely used, and these are the medications that block the effects of acetylcholine. So they have the opposite effect of parasympathetic stimulation. Parasympathetic peas, what would anticholinergics do? They would tend to relax the bladder wall, reduce urgency, reduce frequency. You've got a number of examples, oxybutynin or ditropan as you may know it, tolteridine or detrol, many, many newer agents out there. Um, and the newer agents are actually very helpful because they're much more specific to bladder function, so they have much lower side effect profile. And guess what? You just made it to the end of this section on voiding physiology. If it feels like a jumbled up mess in your head, that's totally normal at this point in time. We'll keep going back and reinforcing critical components of what we just reviewed. Thank you.